Okay, this one. I think we're ready to begin our studies. Uh, we're studying Revelation chapter 21. And uh, I know that some of the things that I'm going to be teaching you are not uh, traditional. Uh, and I want to explain to you why. One of the reasons is because of what we read in the book of Daniel, chapter 12. The Lord had revealed to Daniel a prophecy of the future. And he told Daniel in the fourth verse of Daniel chapter 12, But thou, O Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book even to the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall be increased. And then in the ninth verse of that same chapter, chapter 12, and he said, Go thy way, Daniel, for the words are closed. They're closed up and sealed till the time of the end. Till the time of the end. Now, one of the things that is not emphasized a lot in, in teaching the Bible is that the Bible is an unfolding revelation. That means that what is understood, um, <clears throat> say like in the, the days of the disciples, was not understood in the Old Testament. And so the Apostle Paul spoke about revealing mysteries that were hidden in ages past. It's right there in the book. And so Paul taught things that were not known and were not understood until the Apostle Paul was raised up by God to teach these things. And so... One of the problems that Paul ran into was tradition. The tradition of men. And he spoke about it in a critical way. So did the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he, the Lord Jesus rebuked the Pharisees because of their tradition. Their tradition. There are certain things that people settled on in the Old Testament scriptures uh, from their perspective with human understanding as the essential teaching. But folks, the essential teaching is not the tradition of men. The essential teaching is this right here. You've got to go back to the book and this is what the Lord Jesus was doing in teaching the Pharisees. He was trying to get them to go back to the book. It is written. It is written. It is written. But they exalted themselves above what was written with their own tradition, which is the same thing as human opinion. I think they were just as guilty of tradition today in 2022 as people were 2,000 years ago. It was a big issue then, it's a big issue now. And so one of the things I'm trying to do, I, I listen, if you think that I'm trying to be the new kid on the block teaching some new thing, uh, that's a mistake. And my challenge to 
members at Calvary Memorial Church and anywhere else in the world where people may be listening in is not to take my word for anything. Do like the Bereans who were more noble than those from Thessalonica who searched the scriptures to see whether these things were so. And that's all we can do. Listen, folks, I know nothing. I can do nothing. The only thing that I know that's worth knowing is written in the book. And it's just as much available to you as it is to me. You've got your own Bible. You can read along and you can study along as we study together. We're all in this together. We're all trying to learn how to think God's thoughts after Him and not after how we would like for it to be or how we think it to be. Um, And so I'm doing something a little bit unusual um, in the teaching of Revelation chapter 21 because the Lord has given us insight into the furthest reaches of Bible prophecy, the furthest reaches of the unfolding revelation. And so um, it seemed to me important to talk about animals. Why? Well, one thing, it's not traditionally taught. It is written. That's a tradition of men. It's not what you uh, it's not what you discover by reading the Bible. I mean, have you ever thought about it? What day of the week was it in the six days of creation that God created animals? Some might think it was the second day or the third day or the fourth day or the fifth day. And any of those answers would be incorrect. It was on the sixth day. When did he create man? On the sixth day. He created animals and man on the same day. And if we're going to study the Bible and know the mind of God and how he thinks, you're going to miss a lot when it comes to really understanding how God thinks if you just jump over that and say, well, the Bible is about the salvation of the soul of man. And that's it. Well, that's tradition. And that's what's taught in the churches for the most part. That the whole Bible is just about the gospel and God's love for man who had fallen into sin. And uh, so we're just going to focus on that and we're not going to focus on anything else. That is a mistake. And the reason is because God would use animals to help us better understand the gospel and and his relationship to man. He would use animals to do that. And so I do not think that it's a wrong thing to spend a few Sunday school lessons studying the subject of animals from God's perspective because it's critically important. Critically important. And uh, I want to just point out just a few things to you because there's so many things that we could get into and some of these things we've covered before but uh, some of us that have not thought about these things a whole lot and I think 
uh, bringing this to our attention a little bit more often might help us grasp it a little better, the significance of it, the importance of it in the mind of God. One of the things that really impressed me when I was reading the book of Jonah, um, you know what the last word is in the book of Jonah? Have you ever noticed it? Hosea, Joel, Amos, Jonah, Micah, Nahum. Cattle. What's the last word in the book of Jonah? And here's what the Lord said. And should not I spare Nineveh, that great city, wherein are more than six score thousand persons that cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand. And so traditionally, we think that that's all God cares about. But that's not what he says. And he says it right here. And also much cattle. Does God care about the cattle? He said He did. And He was rebuking Jonah for wanting him to destroy Nineveh. Because in asking him to destroy Nineveh, He was was asking him to destroy 120,000 people and much cattle. And He didn't want to do it. Why? Why? Because God loves animals. Now, in Proverbs chapter 12 and verse 10, you read something that's very important. And the statement is that a righteous man regardeth the life of his beast. Well, if you study the Bible carefully, you will find out there are no righteous men. Apostle Paul wrote to Romans and explained it very, very carefully so that no one could possibly miss it. There's none good. There's none righteous. And so, who could that be referring to? Jesus Christ helped us to understand it when he was talking to the rich ruler in Luke chapter was it 17 or 18? One or the other. He came to the Lord Jesus and said, Good Master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And the Lord asked the man a question. He said, Why callest thou me good? And none good but one. That is God. That is the same statement that we need to apply to Proverbs chapter 12 and verse 10. A righteous man regardeth the life of his beast. Animals belong to God. They sure do. And he is the righteous man. There's none good but one, that is God. There's none righteous but one, and that is God. And his name is Jesus Christ. And for us to follow some tradition of men and ignore God's feelings and his heart toward what he has created. He loved everything that he created. And after creating everything that he did create, He said it was good. It was good. He was very pleased with it. And I submit to you that animal life is very similar to human life and that God breathed the breath of life into every living thing that lived. 
God breathed into Adam the breath of life and Adam became a living soul. Well, where did the breath of the animals come from? It came from God. It came from God. And so anybody that does not believe that an animal has a spirit dimension just like a human being has a spirit dimension is not reading the Bible. I am not reading other books to teach you what I'm teaching you. I'm reading the Bible. So turn with me to Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 The Lord is making a comparison here between humans and animals. I wonder why he would do that. They were created on the same day. And there are a lot of things that God did when it came to animal creation and creating man in his own image that go together. A lot more together than we would maybe consider. In verse 18 it says, And I said in my heart concerning the estate of the sons of men that God might manifest them that they might see that they themselves are beasts. Beasts. Animals. For that which befalls the sons of men befalleth beasts or animals. Even one thing befalleth them. As the one dieth, so dieth the other. Yea, they have all one breath. Is that important or what? One breath. What one breath? The breath of God. God breathed into Adam the breath of life. He became a living soul. The same breath that breathed life into Adam breathed life into living creatures. What kind of life does God impart? Well, you may not think about it in the way of actually believing it, but you're going to have a hard time refuting what you're fixing to hear. But God did not breathe out anything but eternal life. Ever. It's the only breath He has. It's eternal. The only life that God has is eternal. If you do not believe that, then you have to believe that God is actually responsible for death. And the Bible is absolutely clear that death entered in because of the sin of Adam. A person that doesn't believe that is not reading the Bible and they're not studying the Bible and they're not believing what they're reading. Death began with Adam. It didn't begin with God. And if God imparted life that was not eternal, then He imparted death. And that is as far from all that He is as any thinking you could ever do. And I learned that in the Bible. Life. God breathed the breath of life. Everlasting life. God never intended for one animal to die. Never. He never intended for man to die. Ever. But sin entered in with Adam and Eve. And the sin was passed on in terms of the consequences of their sin was passed on to the ground. God cursed the ground. He cursed the entire universe 
with the second law of thermodynamics. It's called decay. Decay. All systems are running down and decaying. The ground begin to grow briars. All kinds of unwanted things. And death entered into everything that God created. And it entered into the animals. There's not one verse in the entire revelation of Scripture that indicates that animals ever sinned or ever will. But the consequences of Adam and Eve's sin fell upon them. And so what would we conclude about it? Listen to me. They're innocent. They're innocent. And so the Lord, now if we want to enter into His thinking, I I don't see how you can say this is not true. The Lord Jesus looked at His animal creation and He says, now how can I teach man something about innocent creatures suffering because of the crime of somebody else. How can I do this? How can I teach the world that the innocent Son of God would go to the cross and die for the sin of somebody else? How can I do that? I'm just trying to educate ourselves into how God thinks and to understand better God's purposes in allowing death to come into the world and affect those animals. And so Jesus Christ in Genesis chapter 3 killed an animal. It was a picture of God so loving the world that He gave His only begotten Son. That whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. And His Son was innocent. So what did Jesus Christ do? He went and He found a sheep. And He killed it. Did the sheep do something wrong? No. The sheep was innocent. The sheep didn't sin. He didn't either. And so the sin of Adam and Eve passed upon the sheep. The sheep were innocent. How can anybody read the Bible and not see that? The animal creation were innocent of sin of any kind. And God chose to use them as types of His own personal self. And if you think that animals are going to suffer for all eternity to come because of our sin, you are wrong. And that is not what the Bible teaches. It absolutely is not what the Bible teaches. Now, sprinkle along in Scripture all kinds of things that are precious to me as I've studied it because I love animals. I live in a home where my wife loves animals and I love animals. I grew up on a farm. I love animals. And I've discovered the personalities in animals. In horses, in cows, even in pigs. I've had all kinds of animals. I've had birds, parakeets, um, kittens, dogs, How can anybody ever own a dog that has a soul in their body and not look at those little creatures and and love them? And look in their eyes as they talk to you. And the expressions on their face and their their tail that wags and, and and not see that dog communicating 
I'm one of those people who believes, as Henry Morris does, that the animals that God created could converse with Adam. Now, he could talk to them. One of the proofs of that is when the serpent spoke to Eve, she didn't jump back and say, Hey, wow, how did you do that? It was no surprise whatsoever. And to a great extent, we can talk with animals even now. As a matter of fact, there are some animals have been actually trained to actually talk in a way that you can understand what they say. Birds, parakeets, parrots. Uh, I know about a parrot when I was growing up. It's owned by a fairly wealthy family in town where I grew up high level. And the man was that owned that parrot was profane. He was had the filthiest mouth. And he had that parrot. The parrots lived a long time. He had that parrot in the house. And he would curse. Boy, I'm telling you, that the, the man that owned the bird would curse. Use terrible words. And so in the summertime, they had a cage outside on the sidewalk. And they, they lived right there in town. And the sidewalk went right by their house. And they had this big old cage out there with this parrot in it. And you'd be walking along down the street and that parrot would cuss you out and you would not misunderstand what he was saying. It was terrible, terrible language. Well, you can also teach a parrot to say good things. Like, I love you. We taught our parakeet to do that. So why should we think it's strange that God would create animals to have communion and fellowship with man? And that God would use animals on down the way in his unfolding revelation to teach us something about... um, the difference between the nature of God that is good and the nature of an animal which is very ignorant and it takes a great deal of patience to train and to teach an animal. It does. But an animal has a nature that's very difficult to change. For instance, if you have a pet pig, a pet hog, how are you going to teach that pig to not love wallowing in the mire? Because it's his nature to love to wallow in the mire, right? Absolutely. And so you can dress it up and put a skirt on it, put lipstick on the pig and do all kinds of stuff, perfume it, do all this stuff, but you turn that, that pig out And if it's a rainy day and there's a mud hole out there with lipstick, perfume, and all, that that pig will go straight to that wallowing hole and lie down in it and just smile the biggest in the world. And aren't we that way when it comes to the nature of God? And His wanting us to have His nature when we have a sin nature and we love the world, the Lord tells us, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye and the pride of life is not of God. And so God is trying to change our nature and and trying to change the nature of a dog that loves to eat vomit and many other things. Um, how are you going to do that? It's very complicated. Very complicated. But you can train animals to do many things that are pleasing to the owner. 
The Lord Jesus in Isaiah chapter 1 said, The ox knows his owner and the ass his master's crib. He said, But my people does not know. My people does not consider. God was saying in some respects, animals are easier for me to deal with than humans because of their nature. We love sin. And no matter what God tells us and how much He invests Himself in getting us to turn away from the world, we love sin. And just as soon as we have an opportunity, we're going to head straight to the mud hole. And we all know that's true. In Luke chapter 12, in verse 6, very important verse, The Lord is speaking about sparrows. He said, Five sparrows are sold for a farthing, which is a tenth of a Roman penny, if you look it up. Pretty cheap to buy a sparrow. We would not attribute much value to a sparrow. And that's why the Lord said it that way. You wouldn't pay but a tenth of a penny for a sparrow, would you? But that's because you do not think the way I do. Because here's what he says about it. Not one of them is forgotten before God. Not one is forgotten. You value an animal, a bird, a fowl, a sparrow, as having no more value than a tenth of a penny. But I'll tell you how much I value them. I will never forget them. Not one of them is forgotten before God. <clears throat> now, we're going to believe the Bible or we're going to believe our own way of thinking, which is rather puny. This is big. This is not puny. This is huge. And it gives us insight into the Creator God that you would never have if it were not for this book. You would never have this understanding without this book. But I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 9. Let me show you something else you may not have noticed. Genesis chapter 9. And let's read, uh, let's see. Let's just begin reading at verse 12. And this is after the flood. And God is here revealing this to Noah. And God said in verse 12, Genesis chapter 9, this is the token of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. Did you see what I just read? It's a covenant. What is a covenant? Well, it doesn't have to do with the past because that's already happened. A covenant is a promise that looks to the future. Looks to the future. And God is making a covenant with man and with creatures. Okay. You can think about it any way you want to. You can believe that God has no plan for animals that die. But I don't believe that. And I've got a reason for not believing it. And I just read it. 
This is a token of a covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I do set my bow in the cloud and it shall be for a token of a covenant between me and the earth. Well, why did he say that? Because you see, the sin of Adam resulted in groaning and pain when it came to the earth itself in a manner of speaking. God never intended for the world that He created, the paradise that He created to have weeds in it and thorns and things that hurt. He never intended that. But He allowed it as a perpetual reminder that we did something wrong. And the consequences were not isolated. It had ramifications that were enormous. And it affected the entire creation of the universe. And the earth began to wobble. And it still does. It didn't used to be that way when God created everything. Verse 14 of Genesis chapter 9, And it shall come to pass when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow shall be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall no more become a flood to destroy all flesh. And the bow shall be in the cloud, and I will look upon it, that I may remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature. I didn't write that. God wrote that. Of all flesh that is upon the earth, And God said unto Noah, This is the token of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is upon the earth. Well, do we believe that that covenant had to do with everlasting life for you and me? Are you going to just divide it now by the tradition of men and say, okay, it doesn't have anything to do with the eternity of the creatures that God created and loved? I mean, a lot of times we mess up by putting our own human reasoning upon the Scriptures to make it fit our way of thinking rather than the way God says it. And that's a mistake. It's wrong. So let's turn to Romans chapter 8 and we'll see that um, this is something the Apostle Paul put some thinking to. Romans chapter 8. He says, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Okay, he's talking now about the future. He's taken us all the way to Revelation chapter 21 where we find the final phase of the unfolding revelation of God. It's the creation of a new heaven and a new earth. What's it going to be like? Paul tells us. Verse 19. For the earnest expectation. What is expectation? Is something that's dead, that is never going to live again. Um, take on meaning when it comes to earnest expectation. How does something that's dead, that is never going to live again, 
going to have an earnest expectation. Who is it that has the earnest expectation? Every living creature. You can think all you want to that the everlasting covenant that God revealed to Noah had only to do with man, but that's not right. That is not what it says. It is not what it says. Verse 19, For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. What manifestation? The manifestation that God can change our nature in the form of a gift. He would give it to us. There is no other way to have it. God would educate us with this book to understand that we had a nature that we could not change any more than a, uh, an Ethiopian could change his skin or a leopard his spots. We're fixed. We're doomed. We're damned forever when left to ourselves. There's no way by works we can change this condition. So the message of the Bible is the gift of God. It's a gift. We come to the point of realizing that we're monsters of iniquity, we're deserving of hell, but if we believe that God is as He's revealed Himself to be, a God that is full of mercy and grace, and that He's good for His Word, and He says, if you'll just believe in me, the faith that I have in myself to do what I'm fit to tell you, I will give you as a free gift everlasting life. That's the gospel. It's the gift of God. What can you do for a gift? Nothing. You do absolutely nothing for a gift. But here's what you can do. You can become convicted of this message from heaven that describes us perfectly as monsters of iniquity deserving of hell and that the only way that we can be saved is as Peter said there's none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved it's the gift of God he gives it to us Verse 20, Romans chapter 8. For the creature was made subject to vanity. What's that mean? That means they didn't sin. They were innocent. Not willingly. They were made subject to vanity. Not willingly. In other words, they had no participation in the fall as a result of the act of their own will. The animals did not. It's as plain as it can be right here. How else can you understand it? But by reason of him who has subjected the same in hope. Draw a circle around the word hope, folks. That's a futuristic term that applies to animals. Can animals have hope? Not if they cease to exist like is taught in most churches in the whole world. That's not what the Bible teaches. It's not what Paul wrote. He talks about the creatures. He's not talking about man having hope. We do have hope in Christ Jesus as those for whom Christ died. But it's using the same word when it comes to the animal creation. Why? Because they're types of the innocent Lord Jesus. Because our sin was placed upon Him. And He was innocent. 
And God would never let us forget it. And I'm telling you, every time you see an animal suffer, every time you see an animal suffer, it's to remind you of the question, why do the innocent suffer? Those animals are types of Jesus Christ. He's very close to the animals. He's very close to them. A righteous man regardeth the life of his beast. I'm going to tell you one thing. If you've got a dog and you let it get thirsty in the summertime because you just neglect it and forget to fill the water bowl, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. That dog has feelings just like we do. And they belong to God. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and they that dwell therein, including the animals. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills and they're very important to Him. Everything He created was important to Him. Verse 21 Don't forget to put a circle around hope because you can't understand it any other way, I don't think. Because the creature itself, the animals, also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Now people say, well, creature, you're teaching blasphemy. You're saying that Jesus Christ died on the cross and shed his blood for the animals just like he did for man. No, I'm not. He didn't shed his blood to save himself. Why? Because he was innocent. Why would he shed blood for animals when they are innocent? I'm not teaching blasphemy. The blood of Jesus Christ had to do with you and me. Because of our sin. We are the ones that sin. Not the animals. They were innocent. The blood of Jesus Christ that was shed on Calvary's cross was not for the animals. It was not for Himself. Because He's innocent. So were the animals. That's what the Bible teaches. Why is this so hard to understand? I have sat down with preachers and tried to talk to them about these things. I can't even get a conversation going. You may tell you why. Tradition. Tradition. These kinds of things are part of the whole counsel of God. And I submit to you that people do not study the whole counsel of God. And you go into most churches and and all you're going to hear is a simple plan of salvation for man. And that's it. There's no exposition on the whole counsel of God. But think of the volume of things we miss out on. When it comes to knowing this amazing person called Jesus Christ, he's an amazing person. And to think that he's so tender in everything that he does that when it comes to the sparrows out here, and there are millions of them, he says, not one of them is forgotten. God is big. A lot bigger than we think. And He knows the hair on your head. Every one of them. Every single hair. You don't. I don't. I know I've lost quite a bit, but God knows every one of them. Does God forget anything? No, except for one thing, sin. And that gets us into a section that 
I want to try to develop um, that again is very untraditional but I want to close by just reading you some things I've tried to start reading this several times and I uh, Matthew Henry has for a long time been one of my heroes um, I love the fact that this man spent a lot of time meditating on the scriptures in the Bible and when I'm reading something some subject that I find few people will even comment on when it comes to commentaries I find that Matthew Henry will he'll take a shot at it and he says some things and so I was reading Romans chapter 8 verses 18 through 25 in uh, Matthew Henry's commentary on Romans in the 6th volume set that's what you have to have to get the mother load of what he has to say And he says, in the creatures, verses 19 through 22, that must needs be a great and transcendent glory which all the creatures are so earnestly expecting and longing for. This observation in these verses has become difficulty in it. It has some difficulty in it, which puzzles interpreters a little. That's why I don't talk about it, ever said it or whatever. And the more because it is a remark not made in any other scripture with which we might be it might be compared. By the creature, here we understand not as some do the Gentile world and their expectation of Christ and the gospel, which is an exposition very foreign and forced. But the whole frame of nature, especially that of this lower world, the whole creation, the uh, uh, companies of inanimate and sensible creatures, which because of their harmony and mutual dependence and because they all constitute and make up one world are spoken of in the singular number as the creature. The sense of the apostle in these four verses we may take to the following observations. That there is a present vanity to which the creature by reason of the sin of man is made subject Isn't that what we've said? Folks, I did not read this until about a month ago. And I've been preaching about animals for several years. Exactly what you're hearing this morning. I wish that I had read this a long time ago. He goes on to say, and we ain't got time to read all of it, when the world was drowned and almost all the creatures in it, surely then it was made subject to vanity indeed. The whole species of creatures is designed for and is hastening to a total dissolution by fire. And he goes on to talk about you know, how the world is going to be eventually destroyed by fire. But how God is going to create everything new. Everything. Well, if not one of them is forgotten, I wonder what the future of those are going to be. Is he only talking about animals that exist at the time or that God is going to create later on? That's not how you understand the Scripture. It's talking about every living thing that God breathed breath into since the beginning of creation. Is there anything that man or the fallen angels, Lucifer, could do 
to cause the will of God to stumble? Is God big enough for His will to be done? Well, what was His will in the beginning? It was to create living creatures and man in His own image to live forever. Is God able to uh, pull that off? so that every living thing that ever lived is going to live again according to His covenant with Noah. And He made it very clear that that covenant was not just with man. It was with every living creature. Every living creature. That's way back then. Every creature that has ever existed how else can it be understood? I don't know. I'm telling you something. I'm a very profoundly ignorant man. If there's some other sense of these verses than what you're hearing, I am so profoundly ignorant, I don't even know whether I ought to be up here teaching you ever again. Because I'm just trying to read the plain simple statements in this book. And that's all I ask us to do ever is just read the Scriptures and, um, and learn as much as we possibly can about this amazing Lord Jesus Christ. He's just an amazing person. And He's so full of compassion, so full of love. And uh, as it tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, eye hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for them that love Him. Those of you that have animals that you have known and loved, they're almost like little people. They're little personalities. And we've got pictures of them all over our house of animals that we've had. It'll almost bring tears to your eyes to just look at the picture and remember them. Like our little dog Harley or Kimber. And how God must have thought about those animals and how our emotions toward those animals was a reflection of His because we're made in His image. And the thought that what hasn't entered our heart is that God would bring them back from the dead to live forever. To live forever. Is I think some of the amazing future that awaits us. God is amazing. And eternity provides a lot of room. There are no borders to His creation. Nowhere. And for somebody to say, I just don't see how there'd be room for all of these animals. That is a joke. That, that's almost blasphemous when it comes to what God has created. It's eternal. There are no borders. No borders. There's plenty of room. Plenty of room. Well, our time is gone. Uh, oh my... Jim, pray for us, brother. Lord, we thank you for this day. Thank you for the opportunity to come here again as a church family and listen to your word, hear the truth. We do ask you to continue protection, Lord, for these last days. Give us the tools we need to witness to the lost in this community and help us, Lord, be, be those.
nose and make it the head and stand in the gap uh, until you return. Prepare our hearts today for the, the next message that you have in store for each one of us here. And just to make everything that happens here today will be profitable for eternity. We'll bring glory to you. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name.